Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Spring 2022 podcast and webinar series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The following episode is a live recording of Patrick O'Moran speaking at the Spring 2022 Freelance Forum live event held on 11th April at Grinch Gorman campus of the Technological University of Dublin. We hope you enjoy. Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Jared Cunningham. Uh, this is the Freelance Forum. This is the first forum that's been held in person since the Spring 2020 event was postponed at the last minute thanks to something called COVID. So you're all very welcome here. He's not here at the moment, but I'd like to thank Harry Brown uh, for arranging this accommodation. Um, we usually hold these in uh, Boswell's Hotel, but the room there was very small considering I, was, I wanted to make sure we had fairly good ventilation, which we have here and so on, there's good air conditioning and stuff. There's masks here for everyone as well if you want to grab them, free FFE2 masks if you want to take them as well. The forum is organised by the NUJ Dublin Freelance Branch, uh, along with uh, support from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. Uh, and hopefully with support from whatever succeeds to be AI after the new uh, media bill goes through, but we'll, we'll have to see what the future brings on that. I'm not going to talk anymore, I'm just going to stop at this stage and I'm going to introduce, this is Parit Moran, um, Parit's going to talk to you just about some issues that may have arisen as a result of, uh, of COVID and dealing with those. Hope you all have a good day, and don't forget to talk to each other and network a bit before the day is out as well. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Every time I saw mention of this coming up on Twitter, I said to myself, Jesus, what am I going to say to these people? Um, but I've cobbled something together, as one always does. Um, last night, I realised about 11 o'clock, I've got to work out what to, what to wear because this is the first live thing I've been at since, I think, last September, when there was a brief glimmer of hope. And I've been that for two years, so that's why I look like I've come out of a poorly stocked charity shop this morning. Uh, nothing has gone to the cleaners for at least two years. Um, so we have uh, a greyhound called Lemon, and Lemon... Uh, is brought to the park every now down to the Phoenix Park, but we bring her in the car, and when we, when it comes time for her to get out of the car, she just stands there and looks at the ground very, very doubtfully, and at the pavement very doubtfully, and it can take quite a long time for her to take the decision to take the risk of stepping out, and we uh, bribe her, of course. But sometimes the bribes work and sometimes they don't and sometimes you have to give more bribes. Um, and sometimes you actually have to carry, lift her out of the car, which is very difficult to do with a greyhound, actually. And I suppose sometimes I think of all of us who are doubtful about going back into the big wide world as being rather like Lemon the Greyhound. I'm sounding a bit like Father Ted here, I suppose. But anyway, there's a bit of lemon in all of us, you know. Um, but we, we all have this reluctance to take that, or so many people to take that, that step. And uh, I think that's what 
what we what we uh, and nobody I think is bribing us either to encourage us to take the step, which is unfortunate. But I read a piece the other day by a New York Times journalist called Michal Leibowitz, and she wrote the headline on her piece was. I didn't feel like going, but I'm glad I did. And she talked about going out to events, forcing herself to go out to events. She lives in New York in a one-bedroom apartment, but she has to force herself to go out to events after all the lockdowns. And she normally gets goes home from them as quick as she can. And she, But she's always glad that she did go out and mingle with people for however short a time. And I think that's maybe one theme that we could look at. Um, she wrote that even socialising seems poised to move out of the public sphere and into private homes, with 75% of respondents to a Harris Poll survey saying that during COVID social distancing, I realised I preferred smaller social gatherings at home or at a friend's place over going out to bars or restaurants. And I think that... Um, that, in a way, that kind of mirrored my own experience in that after the first lockdown last year, when we thought that this is all over, I think people went out quite enthusiastically, and we did anyway, to restaurants and places that we knew. But this time, when it's maybe it's over, maybe it's not over, etc., but you can go anyway, uh, we haven't gone out to any of these places. It would require... Uh, an effort. And she wrote, which I think says a lot about it, that I don't get anxious when I leave home exactly. I just find that now the connection between things I need to survive and leaving my house has been severed. My desire to do so has waned. So you get a, you can get institutionalised in your own home, you know. And back when this place here was a psychiatric hospital when people might be moved from here in the latter years into sort of independent or semi-independent accommodation you know it's, this is a bit of a cliche really but that if, if a if a light bulb needed to be replaced they would wait for somebody to come and replace it even though they're all quite capable of replacing a light bulb themselves but the institutionalization had done that. And it's a well-known effect of being institutionalized that you lose your, uh, some, of your, some of your independence, your agency, as they would say, um, and you, you, don't, um, you don't do things that you would ordinarily do. And many people, I think, probably lots of us got a bit institutionalized in our own homes where we got used to just to being there, there is a human um, a human uh, trait called habituation, which I'm sure you've heard plenty about, and which means that you can kind of get used to anything. And that is what I think happened to us. One of the things that happened to us. When you... When you go to... Let's say there's a, a place you like to go to, a restaurant or something that you like to go, go to. <coughs> when you see that restaurant, when you think of it ordinarily, the sort of the 
the neurons in your brain that get your legs moving towards that restaurant, they become active, you know, they kind of, they all light up. And they become active actually bef just before you make the decision to go. And what happens though, if that doesn't happen for a very long time, is that, is that those connections kind of die away, you know? Because you're not going there anymore, it's, 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 it's kind of, it doesn't have that effect, it doesn't give you that kick. So, in a way, that's what's happened with a lot of people, that the things they used to get a bit of a kick out of, they don't get a kick out of anymore because that, um, th those connections, that uh, desire to, to be there died away over a long period of time. And it's a thing that can happen to anybody. So, one thing, lesson from that, is that to re-engage with the world, we have to force ourselves to do it until we get to like all of that again. It's like the idea, you know, in um, you'd find in motion, motivational psychology that very often you need to do something before you become motivated to do it. Like we, we imagine that we will become motivated to do something and then we'll do it. But it often works the, the other way around. First you do it and then you feel the motivation. It's an unfortunate fact, but there it is. Somebody compared it to if you had a suitcase and you wanted to move it along. Say the suitcase represents your feeling of interest and enjoyment and things. But say that there's quite a long lead or rope or something attached to the suitcase and you're walking along, you're going to be pulling that rope for a while before the suitcase itself starts to move. So it's like that with doing things that you know you kind of want to do, but you don't get the kick for a while until you've done it for a while. Obviously the difference between that and addiction is that the thing you're addicted to kicks in straight away. It, it kind of it jumps over all those fences really fast. But when, um, again, she, in this article uh, that I've been quoting from, it gives a kind of a framework, which is why I'm using it. Uh, she say, writes, I've been trying to remember that the unpredictability of shared social spaces also introduces the possibility of surprise and the chance of unexpected delight, which is half the joy of living near other people in the first place. And it seems to me that if I look, look back over things that have made a huge difference and made kind of life-changing differences, they weren't when I was sitting watching the screen or on whatever might have been the prehistoric version of Zoom. Um, it was when I was out and about doing something else. Um, coming across a book in a bookshop, say, that then went on to change my life. That happened twice, actually, so I'm a bit wary of bookshops now. Um, <laughs> then the... the um, hearing about... Even walking down the street, a couple of times maybe walking down a Grafton Street with colleagues and they might, say, they might tell me something that 
that would click, you know, then I would follow that up and that would make a big difference in my life. I write some poetry which nobody reads. It's kind of internationally obscure. And um, I remember one time walking down the street with a colleague, one Therese Caherty, I do believe, and saying that I was waiting to get enough published in, in journals to get a collection published. And she said to me, you don't have to wait to get enough published before you can get a collection published. So I put a bunch of them together and I got a collection published. So thanks very much for that. I don't think I ever mentioned it before. Um, uh, I met, you know, I met my future wife at a party which which was just, you know, a completely mad, wild pre-Christmas party in the in the Barge pub a long time ago. Um, so I always say that when you, you can be, we're trying to, we try to plan our lives, which is fair enough, and we have goals, which is fair enough. But you can be walking down the street, and for no particular reason, you just cross the street, and then your life changes. You run into somebody, you see something, you find out about something, and your life changes. That's the way it works, really, I think, a lot of it. For some of us, for some of us anyway, I'm more a person who, who, um, when things come along, I kind of latch onto them more than I'm not that good at going out and saying, "Here's the idea. I'm not. I am not going to make this happen." The thing about walking down the street and your life changes is, in order for that to happen, you have to actually be walking down the street. So that's the thing about people re-engaging with society. It is pretty feasible to to conduct your life on um, on Zoom. But you're not walking, you're not having the same kinds of conversations, the same accidents are not getting to happen. I think that's an important uh, part of it. And I found even coming here today, I was saying to myself, why, did the, why couldn't the NUJ have done this on Zoom? Like, what are they, what are they at? Why didn't they just do it? Why do I have to go to a place? But it's different, you know, it's a different experience and it's a better experience, I think, too. Somebody contacted me last week to do a lot of work for them and they want some of it on Zoom and they want some of it in person. And my first reaction was, what did it mean they want stuff happening in person? This is terrible. But um, I'm going to do it anyway, so hopefully my life will change in a good way. So that's the first thing. You have to be where you can be surprised. You have to be where you can um, make connections. So interactions are what's important. But one thing, there's a couple of things that can, can stop us. Like lots of people are more, are more inhibited or shy about uh, interacting with other people than they ever let on. All of us are operating behind a mask anyway, you know. What you see is so is so rarely what everything that there is, which is made be just as well, perhaps. And um, so therefore, coming out into re-emerging uh, from, from the cocoon is, um, brings that old threat, you know, of being exposed in some way, of not measuring up, maybe. And often, so it, it may make it seem more more um, more obvious that I, I think I don't measure up to this particular group of people. 
I would say about not measuring up that it depends on who you're comparing yourself to. In a, in a thousand years, I would not measure up to or be as good as, say, the average journalist who's out in Ukraine now, for instance, or journalists in Mexico who are being who are being killed every month, as far as I can see, um, or lots of other lots of other journalists, even in non-violent situations. But there is a, a group of. A, of journalists that I would consider myself to to be or to have been whatever way you look at it, part of and to have been good enough to be there so it's a matter of what group are you comparing yourself to and that's the thing I think for people to bear in mind um, and then you can catastrophize catastrophizing means think that if this goes wrong it will be a catastrophe and my mind was saying, well, where is this? How do you get to this bloody place anyway? Up, up near Smithfield. And, you know, it was sort of saying to me, it'll be terrible, it'll be awful, it'll be a catastrophe if I'm late, if I don't get there till 10 o'clock or something. But it wouldn't be a catastrophe. A catastrophe would be this building collapsing in on top of us. That's a catastrophe. Um, the rest is just an embarrassment, or it's it would be inconvenient, or it would be annoying. But we... Emotionally, emotional language is always um, is always very is always very um, florid and sensational. The brain is like uh, a tabloid, a red top tabloid subeditor, <laughs> writing sensational headlines. Um, but uh, it, it helps us to just pull back from that catastrophizing and awfulizing. People have these irrational irrational fears, which I think again coming in going out into society again can um can um awaken and can reawaken. Things like somebody did a list of, of about two hundred irrational beliefs that we have. Psychologist called Albert Ellis. Um and he boiled them down then to about 13. But of the 13, the first one was that I must have the approval and admiration of everybody who is important to me, or it will be awful. Now, he would say, it would be nice to have the approval of everybody who is important to you. It's never going to happen, but it would <coughs> be nice. But to say that it would be awful is crazy. And that's the word he would use, actually. That there's always... What you would like, how you would like things to be, and then thinking that it would be awful if they're not. So, if we catch these these thoughts and these ideas, we can pull back from from them. And it's not. It is again a matter of the of the um, of practice and of doing it. I would also say that traits that we have, such as perfectionism, again can come to the fore. They can come to the fore when you're thinking about moving out into a group of people, into places. Um, and there is a curse of perfectionism that's been going around for years now. And talking to, talking to, um, I supervise for counsellors, therapists, and and uh, they, it comes up as a theme a lot, you know, people are trying to be perfect. People think there is an expectation on them that they should be perfect. And it gives people a lot of, a lot of um, grief, that is unnecessary grief. 
the thing of being of aiming to be good enough doesn't seem to be good enough for lots of people, but it is a better thing to aim for. But perfectionism again can give people that that um, fear of going out into the group. But again, I would recommend going out into the group because one thing about people in journalism, when you're in a group, when you're in the place, or when you're in a, a newsroom or something, everybody isn't going around trying to be perfect, you know? They kind of tell stories against themselves and they you get a different a different sense that we all that we all make mistakes or we all um, have this, that or the other thing about us that might not be approved of by everybody. So it's camaraderie, I suppose, that can help people, I think, to 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 lower the, the demands the rather cruel demands of perfectionism. Whereas if you're at home, just you, and I know this is a danger always with, thing with if you're a freelance, you don't have that interaction to tell you that you're okay, basically. So I think that being able to... I wrote down here, believe in yourself, but actually that's not it. Lots of people don't believe in themselves and they do fine. Just being able to move forward one foot in front of the other is what you learn to do when you get out there. You don't have to be your best self. What is a best self? I don't know what my best self is. Is there such a thing? Um, so you don't have to do these kinds of things. And I think that you learn all that if you take the, the big step out into, into the real world and into interacting with people. That's the gist of what I wanted to say. One thing I stopped doing dur during Zoom, the thing was was not having um, a watch, uh, so it's okay. I'm just going all right. I must bring it, and if the if the jeweler is still there, <laughs> put a battery into it for me. So I think that the if we don't move out and if we don't get back to at least say a hybrid, a type of a hybrid way of working, which I like quite a lot, actually, because I like having X days at home and X days out, I think. Um, if we don't start doing that, we won't be, this whole bunch of us, and there are overall different generations here, but this whole bunch of us, we won't be genera generation X, Y, or Z, or millennials, or centenarians. We will be the odd generation. And we need to move out among people to not be the odd generation. So that really is what I, all I had to say. Um, I will return to trying to persuade Lemon the Greyhound to join the rest of humanity when I want to get her out of the car. She has her own Instagram account, by the way. It's called Lemon the Greyhound, if you want to procrastinate. And I see that you're now going to, to learn about, about books and writing books and having books published, which is great. And... Um, I'm sorry I won't be here for it because somebody is actually paying me money to do something on Zoom fairly shortly. Um, if I was here, I would probably say that the, the, the best thing I ever did uh, when I got a, offered a contract was to read the Irish Writers' Union website on contracts. And it certainly saved me from being shackled to somebody for a long time. But anyway, thank you very much for being here. But listen, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. Thanks.
This has been a Freelance Forum podcast. The forum is brought to you by the Dublin Freelance Branch of the National Union of Journalists and made possible by network funding from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland Sector Learning and Development Programme. Music from podsummit.com released under a Creative Commons Zero license into the public domain. I'm Jared Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Take care and stay safe.